It's November 3rd, 1992. The president is a Republican named George H.W. Bush. He has been the president since 1988. Just as Richard Nixon before him, Bush was the vice president for eight years under the previous Republican president and then ran to continue the legacy of the party in the White House. The Republican Party held the executive branch for three straight terms, 12 years. Since 1968, the only Democrat president was Jimmy Carter from 1976 to 1980. The early 90s had been troublesome for the Republicans, however, as Bush had aggravated many within his own party. The economy was now in recession, and he was up against two competitors for the office. The first was Ross Perot, an independent candidate with a surprising popularity that ended up splitting much of the final vote. The other candidate was the Democratic governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton. He and his vice president, Al Gore, had potential, popularity, and a Democratic party eager for a new shot at the executive branch. There were 538 electoral votes available and a whopping 25 available from Florida. 104 million Americans voted. By all accounts, this was the end of Florida's position as a Republican-dominated state. Bush should have handily taken the Sunshine State, but in the end, he won Florida by only 1.89%. This was truly the beginning of our legacy as a swing state. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Swing State, a miniseries presented by Wait 5 Minutes. This is the last episode of three preparing you for the upcoming presidential election. I've told you about our significant role in national elections, and this is the final chapter in that story. We are a swing state, of course, due to our massive population of voters who are not registered as Republicans or Democrats. We could go either way, and since 1928, we have been a reliable factor in deciding the final national result. From 1928 to 2016, we have only voted for the loser twice. That is two out of 23. So these are the exceptions that prove the rule. And today we'll be talking about the last time that we got it wrong. This is the final chapter in the story. Part three, 1992. Before we get into it, are you registered to vote? Have you checked recently? Why not check it out to be perfectly sure while you listen to this episode of Swing State? Head on over to vote.org or register to voteflorida.gov and enter your information to check. If you are not registered yet, never fear. In the state of Florida, you've got until Monday, October 5th, so go check just to be sure. You can also apply for a mail-in ballot while you're there if that is a safer option for you. I personally will be voting in person and early as soon as that option is available to me. Make a plan, make it clear, and make sure that you are registered. I'll give you a few minutes to do it while you listen to this episode, and the links to do so are at the top of the description below. All right, here we go. In the middle of the 1992 campaign, South Florida is struck by a Category 5 hurricane named Andrew. When it hits, the devastation in Miami is unprecedented. Many are left without homes, and the entirety of South Florida was reeling. The response to the disaster was not quick enough for many, and some felt that the national response was unnecessarily delayed. In an iconic moment that we've discussed on the show before, Dade County Emergency Management Director Kate Hale spoke up on the panic she was facing in her county. 
The state couldn't do it alone, and Kate Hale made sure everyone knew it. With public pressure put on the federal government, a more thorough response was on the horizon. President George H.W. Bush sends thousands of troops immediately after, stating loudly, quote, Help is on the way, and it will be a major effort. End quote. But for many in Miami, it was too little, too late. There was not enough food, there was an increase in crime, and Miami was growing more and more tense. In a time where Bush needed to be securing more allies, Miami was no longer looking like a surefire thing. The race for president in 1992 was a turning point for the nation. Republicans had been the ruling party in the U.S. for years, with Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Bush dominating the White House for decades. During his time as president, George H.W. Bush survived on high approval ratings and a strong economy. But an economic downturn after the prosperous 1980s put President Bush in trouble. Notably, during his 88 campaign, Bush led on a popular Republican platform and phrased it in an iconic way. But I will and the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no, and they'll push and I'll say no, and they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips, no new taxes. No new taxes. Except in 1990, in the wake of an economic recession, President Bush raised taxes. That did not make Republicans very happy. To make matters worse, Bush was known for being a strong leader in foreign affairs, but the Cold War was reaching its end and the Gulf War had come and gone. Elected on foreign policy and strong economics only to have both pulled out from under him, Bush was now in a tricky situation. His popularity with Republicans slipped just as Bill Clinton's momentum kicked into high gear. Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas and was an up-and-coming leader in the Democratic Party. He was 46, running alongside another Southerner named Al Gore. Up to this point, it was common for Southern candidates to be paired with Northern running mates or vice versa. The Democrats were putting up two Southerners, but Gore and Clinton were different kinds of men. They had different energies and focuses, and the Democratic Party rallied around this new ticket. Clinton just rocketed into popularity once the convention came and went. He had natural charisma. The Democrats had been stagnant for decades, but Clinton promised opportunity for the working class, promised peacetime and foreign policy, and even spoke openly about helping those with AIDS as the crisis continued to ravage the country. Clinton was a quote-unquote new Democrat, and Bush was on the ropes as the election loomed on the horizon. And then, in the wake of Hurricane Andrew, Clinton came to Miami. It was early September, a few weeks after the hurricane had already come and gone. The effects were still very real, and Governor Bill Clinton and his wife Hillary visited Lauren Roberts Park. The military had set up shop with dozens of tents to take in those who needed shelter. The Clintons spoke with those who lived in the tents and heard their stories. There was obvious political reasons for this, even though Clinton tried to present it as if he was just another leader coming to support the cause. He even apparently insisted on not answering any politics questions. Nevertheless, Clinton was quietly critical of the way Bush had handled the Hurricane Andrew crisis, and he spent the entire trip in Miami speaking on one general idea, unity. He even visited local officials and took notes on what he needed to do if he won the presidency. He visited Homestead Air Force Base, which was decimated. Bush had pledged to rebuild the airbase with federal aid, and Clinton matched the same promise. For some people, everything Bush did, Clinton did better. 
By the time November came around, Bill Clinton took all three Miami area counties. Four years previous, those same three counties were won by George H.W. Bush. In 92, he loses Broward by 20%. He loses Palm Beach by 12 and Miami-Dade by 3. From this point onward, those counties would go on to be consistent Democratic voting bases. And across the state of Florida, no matter which candidate the county swung for, no one topped 60% in any county. This is because of the third candidate who ate up large percentages of voters himself, breaking 20% in most counties across the state of Florida. His name was Ross Perot. He was a billionaire, and for some, he was speaking out on the way that banks manipulated people, and that really invigorated what people were interested in in a president. He had been steadily growing in popularity as the months came along, but in July of 92, fearing that politics were interfering with his personal life, he bowed out of the race. His break from politics didn't last long because in September, after Hurricane Andrew had already left its dent on the campaign, Perot returned. All three candidates went on to have several televised debates together. With Perot back in the fight, Clinton reeled as both men sent loads of attacks against the young Democrat. Whatever popularity Clinton had gained was knocked by those who were looking to see him lose. Perot broke apart that popularity, especially in Florida, taking votes that might have gone to the other candidates, notably Bush. In many, many counties in Florida, Ross Perot took close to one-third of the votes. St. Lucie most of all, but also Monroe, Walton, Okeechobee, and Indian River gave Perot over 28% of their votes. His lowest percentage was 9.9% in Miami-Dade, which, of course, went to Clinton. His impact in Florida cannot be overstated. As for the rest of the state, the counties were pretty spread out, with most of South Florida and Tampa going blue, as well as a few counties on the panhandle. Most in the center of the state goes red, including the greater Jacksonville area. And when all was said and done, President Bush takes almost 41%, Clinton takes 39%, and Ross Perot takes 19%. Bush should have won Florida with no conflict, but it was a struggle until the very end, winning by just 2%. In the end, Florida gave all 25 of our electoral votes to Bush, but we were no longer a reliable Republican state. It shouldn't have been this close for President Bush, but now Florida was the big ticket in presidential races and every race going forward. Despite our 25 electoral votes, Clinton wins 43% of the national vote and 370 of the electoral college votes. Bush, 6% behind Clinton, loses and Florida hasn't voted for the loser ever since. Clinton kept his promise, and he did help rebuild Homestead Air Force Base in 1994. By the 1996 election, Florida was the first state that CNN called for President Clinton. It was important to him that he won Florida, and he did. He won 40% of the vote over Republican Bob Dole's 42%. And with that victory, Florida continues its trend. We vote for Bush twice, Obama twice, and Trump in 2016. On November 8, 2016, Donald Trump defeats Hillary Clinton in Florida by 1.2%. 113,000 votes. That's how close it was. And now, our 2020 election is on the horizon. Tuesday, November 3rd. We are going to be part of history again. We have 29 electoral votes nowadays. Our votes can really change the tide of the national election. It's very unlikely that we will get it wrong this time like we did 
1960 and in 1992. How you vote can be a part of that trend for us. So November 3rd, make a plan. You can early vote, you can vote in person, you can vote on the day of. It doesn't change everything all at once, it doesn't. Sometimes I wish that it did, but part of what we have to do is vote and then do actions in our community. Fight for the things that we believe in and not count on the people at the top to make every decision. Yes, you should vote and you should vote with your hearts. You should vote for your neighbors. You should vote for the people you care about, for those you don't even know and the people that deserve your empathy in our country and in your community. And then after we vote, no matter how it goes, you have to go and fight for the things that you believe in. Work for those in your community that you want to see taken care of. Not just you or your family, but everyone. It doesn't stop at the polling booth. It goes beyond that. It has to. So when I tell you about these moments, 1960, 1992, I want to remind you that Florida voted, and Florida got it wrong. But that doesn't mean that we didn't have an impact in everything. Everything was shaped by the things that we were doing in that time. Civil rights was affected by Florida. Hurricane Andrew changed the way that emergency management was done in the country. Florida was the first state to be affected by the Great Depression before it hit nationally. We are a part of the national conversation, not just from our electoral college votes, but because of everything we do. So be a part of that. Vote and then do the work. I'll be out there with you. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to these episodes of Swing State presented by Wait 5 Minutes. It has been so much fun to write about historical politics. I never do that, and I wish I did more. And it's always fun to really dig into the weird nitty-gritty of our politics of years gone by. If you enjoyed these episodes, please consider leaving a 5-star review below or share the episode with friends on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find the show everywhere at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFM Nick. Once again, if you have not registered to vote, go to registertovoteflorida.gov and if you don't live in Florida, go to vote.org. Thank you for doing it. It means a lot to me. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can check out more of their amazing music at the link below. Now, the moment that I've been waiting for. Season 5 is on the horizon. I am so, so excited for these episodes. You are going to love what I have cooking. It's going to be 10 episodes, and let me just say, the 10th episode is going to be a big one. Season 5 is going to be a really fascinating, wide-ranging story. Of course, we're going to be doing some October-themed episodes, including a trip to St. Augustine and an in-depth conversation about spiders. Then we're going to be talking about trees and hiking trails and a Confederate spy who I find to be extremely fascinating. We'll be talking about a group of politicians who had an unbelievable impact on Florida's history and were called the Pork Chop Gang. That's right, the Pork Chop Gang. And then we'll be closing with a very, very special holiday episode, but we will get there when we get there. October 12th, that's when season five begins. The first episode will be then, and then it will be 10 episodes until the end of 2020. I am so excited for you to listen to these episodes. It is going to be such a great season. I'm really grateful to all of you for listening. It means the world to me, and it makes all the work so much easier knowing that you love this show. Thank you 
and I hope you're enjoying the so-called autumn that we are having here in Florida. I know I certainly am. I'm wearing far too much flannel for 80 degree weather. Anyway, thank you for listening. Season 5, October 12th. You are going to love it. The first episode is going to be about Tolomato Cemetery in St. Augustine, which has the oldest marked grave in the state of Florida. It's going to be great. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. Drink more water. And please, vote. Have a good week.